Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. There is nothing like a great story. Uh, I'm an only child, so as I grew up, I didn't always have as, as many kids around, especially at night in our home. And I would, I would run home from school, uh, get off the school bus, dart home, grab a snack, and go and disappear in my room where I had uh, set up a tent. And it was my, my reading tent. And I'm really grateful to my, my parents for instilling in me the love of great stories and the love of reading. And I spent a ton of my time in the reading tent. And I would disappear and I'd get out a great book, a great story. I'd begin to read about goblins and hobbits and magicians and, and dwarves and dragons and these heroic men and women willing to lay down their lives so that good would prevail over evil. And as I read these stories, my heart would come alive, almost like I was made for a greater story. And then my mom would be like, John, dinner. And I'd be like, ah. And I would break from that, that realm where sometimes the reality and the line of my life would blur with the reality of the story. And I'd go eat dinner and do chores and do homework. And, and then when I was supposed to be getting in bed, I'd turn out the light, wait a little bit, and then go ninja style back into my tent where I'd sometimes read for hours more. Sorry mom and dad. There's nothing, nothing like a great story. You, you know this. This has been your experience. Books that you read or TV shows that you love or movies that we discuss with our friends and family, they're almost always great stories. Brain science proves this point. As they study people who are watching a movie or reading a book that's a great story or hearing or listening to a great story, Instead of just one part of the brain lighting up, which is often what happens, multiple parts of the brain light up when we hear and experience stories, like a, like a Christmas tree. They've also, uh, research has shown that when we're listening to someone read a book or even reading a book and interacting with a storyteller, our brains begin to sync with the author and the storyteller. And the more we listen, the more they sync. Perhaps that's why Jesus' primary way of teaching was through stories. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, you have ears to hear. Are you really listening? So that he wanted his listeners' brains to sync with his brain as he was telling stories. There's nothing like a great story. We've, we've made a lot of mistakes as, as parents, but one thing that we've passed on from, from our legacies as children is, is this love of stories to our girls. From very young, every single night, we we almost without fail, we gather to, to read a story and that, that continues. And there's just books galore in our house and our girls are always getting lost in these great stories. Perhaps our favorite story, The Rosenstill Family, of many, it's close, but one of the ones that we've enjoyed the most is The Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson. You may know Andrew Peterson is, is a pretty well-known singer, songwriter, but he's also a fantastic author. And Andrew, as I understand the story, begin to tell his kids bedtime stories and kind of use his creativity and create this world. And it just 
became a life of its own. And it ended up in four books, a tour de force collection called The Wing Feather Saga. Uh, if you haven't read it, highly, highly recommend it for adults and teens and kids. It is a delight, and Andrew's a follower of Jesus. It's instilled with spiritual truths. There's one moment, and I won't give it away, in the near the end of the first book, where you we're basically tracking the journey of these three relatively, at that, that point in the story, relatively normal kids. And then there's this big reveal. The kids are not who you think they are, and they're not who they think they are. And it opens up their lives to this grander, greater story. I remember the, the night that we're reading it as a family, and it's, what? And all of us just start to smile and kind of giggle because we didn't see it coming. And it's almost like their story was our story. Like we were made for a greater story. And I think that's what we're experiencing. That's what we'll hear the Apostle Paul telling us as we enter into this new series called Resurrecting Church. And it's a study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote this letter uh, probably somewhere in the time frame of 60 to 62 AD when he was sitting in a Roman jail cell towards uh, the end of his life. Almost all of Paul's other letters in the New Testament is filled with them were directed towards issues in specific churches at Thessalonica or Corinth or Rome or Colossae. The letter to the Ephesians is the one letter that isn't necessarily addressed to any specific church issue and, and isn't really necessarily directed to any specific church. If you open up your Bibles, and you can go ahead and do that to Ephesians 1, most of your Bible translations will have a little footnote where Paul is giving his general welcome to the church. It says, in Ephesus, and then there's a little footnote. And it tells you that that phrase, in Ephesus, was not included in the earliest and best Greek manuscripts that we have. Um, now, we can, we can nose dive and get really nerdy there and talk about that, and we, we won't today. But what scholars think is that was probably a later edition, and that the first iteration of this letter was perhaps maybe sent first to the church at Ephesus because it was the largest and most influential church in the area, but it was meant for all of the churches in that region. So it was meant to be a circular letter. Paul's not writing this letter to address any specific instance in a church or any specific problem. He's writing the letter to all the churches to tell them what church is meant to be. I, uh, over this last season, I confess that uh, I've been deeply saddened at times and disappointed at how the church has shown up in crisis. There's been bright spots and there's been good moments, and this isn't necessarily about New Hope. This is about the big C church. And I've been wrestling with this, and a lot of people have been wrestling with this. And I've been praying and wrestling with God over, like, what is this church called to be? Because at the end of the day, that's my primary sphere of influence is leading this local expression of the church in Southeast Portland. And I thought, how could we reorient around being the church that God called us to be? Well, Ephesians is that letter. Ephesians is written to tell us what church is meant to be in all of its beauty and all of its glory. It was very meaningful to each of those early churches that received and read and practiced that letter. And it's just as meaningful for the church at New Hope, the church at Portland. As, as we dive into uh, this, this experience over the next, it will be 11 weeks. Hannah told you I like the long series that I do. Over the next 11 weeks, I hope we emerge the other end more fully realizing what we're called to be as a church in our local expression. Now, every sermon series, myself, the other teaching team members, 
we use lots of different commentaries and lots of other voices that uh, can help us, like, like Beth from last week, to help us frame up the series, to learn what's going on, to study. We take that very seriously. And I don't always share with you what voices we're using, but I, I wanted to at the beginning of the series. If you wanted to, to join us in that study, for some of you who really enjoy that, or buy one of the resources to read along since we'll be in this for, for a few months. One is a commentary by uh, Dr. Lynn Kohick. She is actually the dean of the school I'm doing my doctorate at. And she has written the most comprehensive and newest commentary on Ephesians. It's, it's most excellent. Uh, Dr. Thomas Slater is another great commentary that we'll be using and going back and forth seeing what, what Lynn and, and Thomas have to say. And, and both would be well worth the money if you want to invest in those. Another resource we'll be using is Practice Resurrection by Eugene Peterson, who, who the late Eugene Peterson, many of you may know him, uh, translated the Bible into what's called The Message. And this is kind of like his last most robust book, and I have long considered him my pastor from afar, and it was an, it, this is an excellent book, Practice Resurrection. And then the last one is Dr. Tim uh, Gombas, uh, The Drama of Ephesians. And particularly in today's message, Tim really helped me as I, as, as I begin, as we begin to approach Ephesians, frame up what Paul is doing in the book. So encourage you to pick up any or, or all of those books if you're, if you're really committed and want to do that, uh, but also wanted to know the voices that will be helping inform, and I'll quote and reference some of those voices uh, along the way. Today, we'll, we'll have a public reading uh, right now of Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, so you can, if you want to get out your Bibles and read along with us, that would be great. I uh, just want to set up what Paul is doing in that, and then I will I'll frame up some big ideas based on, on, on these verses of, that we'll run throughout the series. So verses 1 and 2, and you'll see it is just a very general introduction, and you can put that in uh, uh, Ephesus in parentheses. And then verses 3 through 14 is the second longest sentence in the New Testament. It's 202 words. It's one massive run-on sentence. And uh, some scholars think it's a eulogy or a benediction. I, I tend to think of it as, as, a, as a prologue. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have Christine in just a second read uh, the scripture, and then I will pull some main ideas that will carry us throughout the entire uh, season. So let's, let me pray for us as we, we get going. God, thank you for our gathering today. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the folks that are gathered with us uh, online and just pray away distraction. Pray that we would be with you right now, Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we wouldn't think about what happened previously or what's coming up, that we'd just be fully with you, having ears to hear. Uh, we pray that today, uh, Father God, that we would be transformed uh, from our engagement with your word. Um, this is powerful words we're about to hear, and I pray that they would enter us and work in and through us to your glory. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take it away, uh, Christine. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who in, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thanks so much, uh, Christine. What a powerful passage. One massive sentence. Uh, Dr. Tim Gomez, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the drama of, of, of Ephesians, argues that we should, we've should we always been reading Ephesians the wrong way. And I grew up reading it as it's so rich theologically with doctrinally deep statements. You'll see that. You see that in what was just read. And he said we make a mistake if we read it as like a collection of theological statements and, and doctrines that we miss it. We get lost in it. We miss the, the power of the letter. He argues that we should read it as a story, as a great story we're stepping into. And I absolutely agree with him. Uh, this is what, what Tim says. He says, uh, Ephesians then is a drama portraying the victory of God in Christ over the dark powers that rule this present evil age. And the letter becomes a script for how God's people can continue by the power of the Spirit to perform the drama called the triumph of God in Christ. Tim uh, refers to this letter as, uh, as reality-altering and cosmos-transforming. I, I, I love all that. But I think that he's right to view this as a story. Um, I would phrase it up with a statement, and I'll return to the statement throughout the series, that, that our story is part of a much greater story. Uh, we see this in the prologue that Christine just read. Uh, Paul writes in verse 4 that the church was chosen before the foundations of the world. So that's the beginning of this story, this greater story that we're in. And then in verse 9, Paul says that all things will reach their fulfillment when heaven and earth will once again come together. So in this little prologue, Paul is referencing the beginning of the story and the end of the story, and we as the church were locked in the middle of this greater story. Tim not only argues that we should read uh, Ephesians as story, but as an apocalyptic story. So that's kind of a weird world. When, when you probably hear apocalyptic, you think of end times, and that's, that's partially right. The, the Greek word, the idea, simply means revelation. Uh, apocalyptic means that something is being revealed. And there's different types of genres in Scripture. Don't glaze over. This is really important that we don't misconstrue genres. This is where we get bad interpretation. And so there is apocalyptic genre in Scripture. That would be like the second part of Daniel, parts of Ezekiel, John's Revelation. Oftentimes it's like these crazy beasts and, and all these things that we don't quite understand happening. That's apocalyptic literature. We don't normally think of, of Ephesians as apocalyptic literature, but again, I think Tim is right. Usually when apocalyptic literature occurs in scripture, God's people are encountering something troubling, something hard. They're going through a season of suffering and there's this misalignment between who they're called to be and the suffering that is all around them. 
and there's this tension that they feel, and then the, the prophet or the writer will come in and give this apocalyptic literature to ease the tension, to remind them of the greater reality, to give them a new perspective, to put their present moment in a framework. An example of that would be uh, 2 Kings uh, 6, I think that it is. So prophet Elisha's there, and, uh, and they're in this walled city, and Elisha's servant gets up and looks out, and all around the city is this massive enemy. This just kind of to come to destroy them. And he's like, oh, no, you know, he's freaking out like any normal human would be. So he wakes up the prophet Elisha. And Elisha gets up, kind of yawns, you know, fixes coffee, and kind of looks out the window at the same thing and kind of shrugs. So it's like, what? Why are you shrugging? This is horrible. And Elisha saw something the servant didn't see. So Elisha prays this prayer in 2 Kings 6, essentially, Lord, open his eyes. And God answered that prayer, and the servant's eyes were open, and outside of this army are the mighty armies of God ringing the hill. And Elijah's like, see, we're good. <laughs> That's apocalyptic literature. Uh, this tension, what's going on? And then this framework comes in, this apocalypse comes in that puts it in a new perspective that eases that tension. And I think something like that is happening here in Ephesians. I think that's the proper way to, to read the book. We see that again in the prologue. Uh, Paul mentions this phrase, the mystery of his will, that we were the first, speaking to the, to the churches then in the first century, you're the first to hope in Jesus, to experience Jesus, and you're at the very cusp of understanding this mystery of his will. And then in chapter four, we'll, we'll get to that in a number of weeks, four times Paul mentions this mystery again. It says, the mystery has been hidden in God from everyone. And, but even now, even the heavenly beings are seeing it for the first time. And this mystery is being unveiled. That's very apocalyptic language. Like Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus is this puzzle piece that unlocks this mystery and gives everyone, especially the churches, new perspective on who they're called to be and how they're supposed to act and live. We see other apocalyptic in, uh, language in the very beginning of the prologue. Uh, Christine read, blessed uh, are we in the heavenly realms with everything we need. So this is like a heavenly perspective. And this also apocalyptic energy, uh, imagery that we're in this cosmic battle. And we won't get to that till the end of, of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, some of you who are familiar with it know this. Uh, but Paul ends the letter talking about this cosmic battle between good and evil that the church is in the very middle of. This is apocalyptic uh, energy. One, one, an example of that is Ephesians 6.12, and this is from the message translation. Uh, Paul says, there is no weekend war that we'll walk, this is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple hours. This is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. So like Elijah's servant, and I'm like this, I bet you are, when we see hardship and suffering all around us, we start the hand wringing and, oh no, what's gonna happen? And the church is failing and it's all we're gonna lose and all that. Apocalyptic literature, and I think this is what Ephesians is doing, comes in and reminds us, and it can remind us new hope in this present moment that's been really, really hard and discouraging. It can remind us of who we're called to be. It can give us framework and a new paradigm for seeing ourselves and others and God in the world. It can remind us our place in the world and who God has called us to be as the church. So that's one idea that we see in this prologue, that, that our story is part of the greater story. Another idea is that of this greater story, God is the showrunner of the story. And that might be a weird phrase for some of you. Uh, we're, this is called the golden age of television that we're in right now. 
And these epic television shows like Game of Thrones, and there's a lot of them, have what's called a showrunner. And this would be the person that's, that oversees the director, the producer, the writers, the actors, the, the, the screenwriters, all that. They know exactly where the series have gone. If, they, if it's going to be seven seasons, they know where it's supposed to end. And their job is to make sure the show is always heading in the right direction. They're literally involved in everything. I think it's a great term to describe what Paul is putting forth as God's role. God is the causal agent in our story. He is the, the showrunner. This is on full display uh, in the prologue in the verbs that are used, verbs that are always caused by God. And you may not see that on the first run-through, but we're going to run back through quickly these seven verbs that are at the heart of this prologue. Eugene Peterson in Practice Resurrection calls them verbal rockets. I, I love them. So we'll, they'll come up on your screen and we'll go through them pretty rapidly here, but I want you to tune your mind and your heart to these verbal rockets. So in, in verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. This word uh, means uh, good news or good word. It's used of God. Uh, the praise be is the same Greek word. So God is the one who is filled with this good word, and he is instilling this good newsiness, if that's an idea, in each of us, in his church. We're, we're people, we're community of the good news. The second verbal rocket is for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. There's no greater indignity than being uh, passed over than hurts deeply. And there's no greater beauty than being chosen specifically for something. And Paul says the God, the showrunner of the universe has chosen the church, chosen us as part of the church uh, to be at the heart of the action of his story. And we're not chosen because we're special or because we've performed in a certain way. We're chosen before the foundation of the world, so the choice is uh, due to God's grace. Third verbal rocket, he destined us. Some of your Bibles might say predestined, but I think the heart of the word is destined. There's a destiny that is certain. Uh, the Greek word destiny uh, literally means boundary lines. And when I heard that, I thought instantaneously of Psalm 16. Uh, the psalmist says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Verbal rocket four, that he has freely, the praise of his glorious gracious, he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Old school translations use the word bestowed. I like that word. It's a, it's a robust word, uh, given, bestowed. Uh, it's very, very rare. We don't find it in classical Greek. It's used only two times in the New Testament. And it really means to grace somebody with grace. It's like a double powerful word that we've been given grace. We've been graced with grace. And then verbal rocket number five, if we miss that idea, Paul essentially repeats it. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And now the other word was rare. Paul loves this word. He uses it almost 40 times. God, it's, it's filling our cup above and beyond. He's just given us grace upon grace upon grace. Sixth verbal rocket, he has made known to us the mystery of his will and according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Think how honored you feel when someone you trust and respect shares with you a secret. And here's the God of the universe, the showrunner of everything, essentially whispering in our ear the secrets that even the heavenly beings don't know. That God has made known to us. We're no longer in the dark. We're, we're in God's 
inner circle where the action is. And then the seventh verbal rocket, the last one, is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Uh, Another translation of this is to gather up. I really like that. That God is gathering up his entire plan, everything he's always been about since the beginning of the world, and it's all happening in and through the church. We as the church, we're at the heart of what God's doing to make the world right. If we, if we tend to think that as the church, we got to like, we got to do it on our own and we got to like change everything and make it happen, this refutes that with these seven verbal rockets. God is the showrunner. God is doing the work. He's inviting us into his work. And then Paul tells us three times in the prologue, something that's repeated, we're meant to pay attention to it. It's for the praise of his glorious grace. It's not our story. And any church that says it's their story, that's a bad church. You don't want to be part of that church. It's God's story. And Paul's making clear that we know that. So God, you know, our story is part of a greater story. God is the showrunner. Thank goodness we're invited into his work. In that show, in that drama, Jesus is the lead actor. Jesus is the lead actor. Uh, The scriptures will come up again. I'm not going to read it all again, but I've highlighted every reference in verses 1 through 14 to Jesus. And look through there, Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ, in him, through Jesus Christ, in the one, in him, his blood, in Christ, under Christ, in him, in Christ, in Christ, in him. 15, 15 references to Jesus. So lest we forget about Jesus, we're reminded that God's the showrunner, but Jesus is the lead actor. Thank goodness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, brilliant theologian, martyr, hero. I've talked about him a lot. You probably know who he is. He was once asked, uh, what's a good church and what's a bad church? And he's like, well, just, just listen to what the church says about Jesus and how often they talk about him. That's it. And he just kind of shrugged. And I hope that's true of New Hope. That's why we made our mission statement at New Hope, to follow Jesus and share his love. That's why we do communion every single week because we want to, lest we wander away from Jesus somewhere during our worship and preaching, we want to reorient ourselves around Jesus. I hope and pray Jesus is always the lead actor in the story of God, the greater story that's happening at New Hope. And then finally, God is the showrunner. Jesus is the lead actor in this greater story we're called to. But you and I, we have a vital role to play in the story. And this is a a huge idea in the letter of the Ephesians. We're not sitting on the bleachers. We're we're in the game. We're meant to be in the game. That's how God has constructed his worldwide renewal efforts, that it's dependent on us partnering with him in his work. And we see this throughout Ephesians. Note that I said we play a vital role in the story. We live in a country that idealizes, I will say, and idolizes individualism to a dangerous degree. And we begin to bring that to the text and we read scripture through an individualistic lens and that is tragic. We will miss what it's saying. Following Jesus is not a a solo sport, it's a team sport. We're not ever meant to do it alone. We're meant to do it as the church in community. And you see that everywhere. Try to find any singular words in what was read in the prologue, even in the book. They're hardly there. There's all we and us. And Paul begins by, by addressing the letter to the holy people in Ephesus and in other cities and in Portland. He says, grace and peace to you. And you might say, well, there it is, John. He's talking to me. 
But the you in the Greek, most often when you see you in, in the New Testament, it's actually a, a plural collective form of the word. We just don't have the ability to make that evident in the English. And we haven't really come up with a solution. Our friends down south tried. They, they say y'all. <laughs> so we could translate this grace and peace to y'all, but that doesn't sound great. But that's kind of the idea is that we as the church, as a community, this, this letter is not written to you. It's not written to me. It's written to our church. And we're to inhabit it and live it out as a community and as a church. When um, my wife and I, Corey, she grew up in Madison. I lived there for, for quite a while. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a theater group there called American Players Theater. And they were located about an hour outside of Madison. They have this incredible property. And they do outdoor Shakespearean plays. And they were top-notch. A lot of the actors and actresses, um, they perform on Broadway. And they've been in major Hollywood movies. And really, really excellent. And it was actually our first date. Uh, Corey looks back and says that we were just friends then, but I, I knew better. And after we got married, we would get season tickets and we would go to so many, I lost count. We'd pack a picnic and go, and it was just a, such an awesome time. And one thing, I'm not much of a theater. I learned a ton. I, I loved it, but I didn't grow up going to theater. But what, what was self-evident is that it, it's a group effort. From the minute you walk in to the parking crew, to the concessions, to the volunteers, to, to uh, the ushers in the aisle, to to yes, there were key actors and actresses that played key roles, but there's understudies and there's the whole entire cast and crew and scenes and sound and lighting. And it was incredible, but it was a team effort. It wasn't one person. And it was a beautiful analogy of how we're supposed to live out our faith. Uh, I think the official theater word is troupe, a theater troupe, but I, I rather uh, prefer ensemble. And, and Ephesians is, is an ensemble letter. It's, it's meant to be lived out as a community. And Paul will not let us forget this. Um, I love how Ephesians is constructed. The first three chapters, and the chapters weren't original to writing, but it's kind of how we have organized it. The first three chapters are all about the showrunner and the lead actor and everything God's done to set the scene and set the stage and launch this story. And then the second three chapters are how we're invited into the story. And we're called to live out the story and embody the story and bring the story to life. Right at the divide there in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, basic English, points us backward to point forward. And then Paul uses that word, therefore, nine times in the second part of the letter, constantly pointing us back to the greater story, constantly pointing us back to the showrunner and lead actor, and constantly pointing us forward to the lives in which we're to have it. Paul's like, Paul says, I urge you. That word is really beg. He's like, I'm begging you. Please don't just hear the story. Don't just know the doctrine and the theology and be like, that's a great story and nod and not live it out. Another cool word is, he's, he says, I call you to walk in a manner worthy. That Greek word is, is axios. We get our English word axis from it. And axios is a balancing point. And Paul's like, to live the balanced life, you got to know the story and everything God has done for us in Christ. So important. But to live a balanced life, you got to live it out. And if you don't live it out, you're out of balance. And we're not the church we're called to be. A recent report just came out, a massive survey that, that Gallup has done 
that has engendered tons of comment in tons of blogs and podcasts talking about it. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you haven't. But the stat is that for the first time in the 80 years they've been polling, uh, church membership or church involvement has dipped below 50%. It's now at 47%. So it, this isn't the time or place to go into why and how alarmed we should be and all that. There's, there's a lot written about it and, and whatnot. Um, millennials, it's now at 36%. So there's, there's many thoughts I have, and I'll, I'll probably share them in future messages. And, but I read, I read an article by Russell Moore. He's a, he's a prominent thinker uh, connected to the Southern Baptist uh, 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 denomination. And I really respect him. And, and he wrote this article that really got me thinking. And Russell essentially was like, well, we've, we've got a group of people for a long time that have been very loosely connected to the church. So in a season of so much upheaval, it makes sense that at least for a while, hopefully not for too long, they've, they detethered themselves from the church and left. That's sad, but understandable. But he said he's more deeply concerned that, that studies show that there's a group of people very committed to the way of Jesus, very committed to church that are choosing to leave the church. Uh, and, and here's kind of what he said. I want to get his words precise because I thought they were excellent. He says, he concludes that this group of people is walking away not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they do not think the church believes what the church is teaching. And he says this, we're losing a generation not because they are secularist, but because they believe we are. Whew. I think he's spot on. We've got a generation that we're losing that has seen scandal after scandal after scandal. They've seen generation after generation of their leaders tell a good story, teach a good story, but not faithfully inhabit and live out the story. Ephesians won't allow us to do that. And Ephesians gives us the way forward for that of being the type of church God calls us to be, knowing the greater story, telling the greater story, and living the greater story. Many years ago, I think it was the end of a DC talk song that I first heard this, random reference, uh, Brandon Manning says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelieving. And I would add, it's what the believing world simply finds unbelievable. Uh, hear me clearly, the church is gonna be fine. Jesus tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church has been through incredibly difficult periods over 2000 years and continues to flourish. And in the, West, in the Eastern part of the world right now is going through its greatest revival in history. It's an untold story. The church in the Western world will be okay, will survive, but we may lose a couple generations. And I don't want that on my watch. Not for my girls, not for the young people in this church if you're listening, not if you're listening, if, if you're a younger person and, and the things I'm saying are resonating with you. I don't want that for you. And, and I think there's a way forward and Ephesians gives us the picture of that forward. It's to actually live out the story, the greater story, not to settle. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that we should walk in them. Ephesians reminds us that our story is part of a much greater story. God's the showrunner. Jesus is the lead actor, but we, we play such a vital role in the story. And that's what the world is waiting to see. There is nothing like a great story. Uh, again, back to brain science, has shown us that 
people change their thinking and behavior much more rapidly through storytelling than being told what to do. We know this, and uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien knew this. They're known for their great stories, but that wasn't their day job. They were Oxford professors and some of the top in the world in their discipline. They actually took flack from people for spending so much of their time and their lives writing kind of fantasy stories. A lot of their colleagues thought it was a waste of time, but they knew better. They actually write extensively on how the story, the good news story, the greater story is so great, it can't be told apart from other greater stories. So these two men had to create these incredible worlds to bring the story we're part of to life. Back to the tent, I remember reading some of those great stories uh, from these men and how my, as a young kid, 10, 11 years old, my heart began to literally come alive. I remember the moment when I, I, I realized and learned in the story that the Strider was actually Aragorn II, son of Arathorn II, the king of kings of the Middle Earth. I was like, oh! I remember the moment when, when Frodo just this had lived a pretty boring life in the Shire, pretty easy life, when he became the ring bearer. And the choice he made to step into that, I remember when, when Erewhon, the princess, decided that she was going to go with the men to fight, and she dressed as a man and ended up in the battle killing the Lord of the Nazgul. My heart just leapt and came alive when the, the children walked through the end of the wardrobe into this magical world where they were transported into kings and queens and princes and princesses, and they fought evil and sacrificed and lived heroic lives. My heart just leapt, and I thought as a young kid, maybe, maybe their story is my story. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm called to a greater story. And I'm going to be blunt here, so forgive me, and I'll include myself in this. But I think myself and many of us are settling for a lesser story. Not a bad story, but a lesser story. Paul begs us, I beg us, New Hope, let's not settle for the lesser story. We're invited in Ephesians. We're launching into this for 11 weeks. It will remind us week after week that our story is part of a greater story. I want to give you an assignment this week. I want you to find 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and I want you to sit down and either read or listen to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's not long. And I want you to use the message translation, Eugene Peterson. And I want you to sit down, pray, get in a quiet space and listen or read it and enter the story. And remember that our story is part of a greater story, that God is the showrunner, that Jesus is the lead actor, but we're not supposed to just listen to the story and know the story. We're supposed to live the story. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, your goodness and your grace to give us this letter to inspire the Apostle Paul so long ago to sit down in a jail cell and craft this vision of the greater story, this vision of what we're called to become as your people. I know I speak on behalf of our church. We deeply desire that. We don't want our short lives to be wasted on lesser stories. We feel it. We feel it in our bones, God. We want to be part of this greater story. We were made for that. And our world has never needed the church to be the church more than it does right now. And I pray that by your grace and for your glory, that could be part of our church's story. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.